It's good to be with you, and I am enjoying the worship here, and I was looking at this uh, banner here, and uh, that really captures a lot of what I am going to focus on this morning. I am the vine, you are the branches, and John 15 captures that whole concept of Jesus and his people being connected, and that's an important concept for us. I'd like to uh, greet you from the other seven churches in the Great Lakes West District that you are a part of, and also the other parts of LMC this morning that are worshiping here around the world. And there are over 250 congregations, part of LMC, and we're a growing network of Anabaptist uh, congregations. And also like to uh, acknowledge my wife here this morning, my ministry partner. I am semi-retired. I am at least 39 at last count. So um, we're not sure, we're still counting. But in terms of our ministry, um, thinking of any ministry, when you think about uh, time, uh, I'm hired as the uh, bishop for this district quarter time, and uh, you, you, uh, that's the beginning of it, if you understand how ministry works. And uh, so I don't worry about the time frame, but how God is uh, nurturing and blessing our uh, district. It's great to have uh, the fellowship and uh, leadership of Pastor Glenn Rhodes. He's on sabbatical, and we pray that he and Rhonda are having a good time. I occasionally send him a text. He writes, we correspond a little bit, and how things are going. So I think it's going well for him on his journey. The concept of um, the mystery, and I really appreciate what, I believe, Erica, you are the designer for the bulletin there, and that really captured uh, what our uh, sermon is about today. And when I saw that come through on the internet, I was really encouraged there. Ephesians, the mystery of God revealed. And uh, I, I enjoy a good mystery. I don't know if you are into mysteries or not. Uh, my wife likes more, his, she says, I like real stuff. So she likes novels, and uh, I enjoy mystery TV shows. Some of my favorite TV shows are Columbo. That'll sort of date me. You can get them on rerun or old DVDs. And uh, Sherlock Holmes, that's getting even further back. Charlie Chan, that's getting back into the old black and white TV movies. And also I have uh, DVDs. People know what my flavor is, so our children, they get these for me uh, for Christmas. Uh, Barney Miller, another uh, mystery detective kind of show. All of the um, detectives, these mystery uh, shows that I enjoy, uh, they are trying to solve a mystery and they look for clues. And mystery is a concept of, we don't really understand what's going on. Uh, a mystery can be a puzzle. And uh, some of you like, my wife likes, uh, Crossword puzzles, I don't necessarily enjoy crossword puzzles. I enjoy other kinds of mystery puzzles or physics problems, those kinds of things. Um, some of you probably don't enjoy physics. I don't know, when I was in physics class, I remember that most of the people there were sort of groaning. It was sort of like eating your vegetables. You didn't necessarily enjoy that experience. But um, 
one of the things that happened to me as people became aware of my interest in mysteries, that, uh, and Columbo's one of my favorite, he has a dry sense of humor. And I used him sort of as a metaphor when I was a professor at a seminary there in Finley, where we live, in Finley, Ohio, for 20 years. I would say I'm uh, using Columbo as a metaphor and a style for ministry to be not as presumptuous and really be one who's trying to figure out what's going on. Well, Columbo had an old car. Are there any Columbo fans here in the audience today? Any other? A few, okay. Uh, and uh, you know the kind of car he had? A 1959 304. Is it 403 or 304? I think it's 403. Uh, Cabriolet uh, Peugeot convertible. This is an old uh, bucket of bolts, and uh, they were so old and rickety and not that dependable, they had three of them to use on the show. And if you remember the show, how it would uh, hardly run and be smoking and you'd see come pulling into the crime scene and wonder what's going on. Well, in the study for understanding about Columbo's car, guess what I found was the source of one of his cars. One of his cars actually came from Finley, Ohio. It just made my day. You have to understand how excited I was to realize that connection to Columbo. And if you're a Columbo fan like me, you can check the internet. Uh, the only source they found, uh, there, there are several of these uh, cars, two of them in junkyards out there in San Bernardino, California. And uh, there's a problem. If you want to try and restore it, you're going to have difficulty getting it. So, uh, but keep working at it if you're interested. But mystery here in the book of Ephesians is looking at a secret that God wants to reveal at the right time. And throughout uh, the New Testament, there are references to mysteries and secrets. And if you like the book of Revelation, you probably also like physics and puzzles and murder mysteries kind of things. It's not easy to figure out and you can't be in a hurry or a rush or deductive in trying to understand what's going on to get the big picture. So a mystery in scripture is a secret that God wants to reveal. It's difficult to understand, not easy to comprehend, and it's gonna be revealed when God feels it's the right time. And to see an example of this, we need to turn back to the book of Luke. And so you wanna turn with me to Luke 8. And there's a reference there to a parable, and it's a familiar parable, and Jesus talks about, and this would be familiar for some of you who are involved with agriculture, about a farmer who went out to sow seed, and if you want to give a title to this parable, you would sort of call him sort of the reckless or carefree farmer who just threw the seed that he was planting everywhere he went down the road. And if you recall years ago, how they would plant the seed, they'd have a little sack they put around their shoulder and then go out and distribute it by hand. So that's the imagery here. The imagery here is that this farmer didn't have a grain drill uh, behind his John Deere or farm or case, whatever the, your choice or preference is, that uh, this involves doing it by hand. And so it goes in different soil. Well, the response there in this parable <clears throat> is, that his disciples, this is in verse 9 of Luke 8, 
his disciples ask him what the parable meant. So there gives you a clue that parables are, in a sense, trying to reveal the secrets of the kingdom. If you look through the Gospels, the secrets to the kingdom, uh, and I say principles and working, are revealed in Jesus' parables. And when we read this, we think, well, it seems clear, but yet we have probably heard it over and again in Sunday school or Bible school. We've heard this very familiar story and uh, understand it. Well, in verse 10, he says there, then Jesus said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been spoken, have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So there and again is a paradox of Jesus' teaching ministry. We call these sometimes the hard sayings or parables of Jesus. It's not exactly obvious or deductive as to what he's trying to communicate and get across. So the two verses I have today are revealing one of the mysteries, and there are different ways people have looked at the mysteries listed here in Ephesians. Some people look at it as a collection of three or four mysteries that are mentioned a total of six times. Mystery is referred to here in the book of Ephesians. And I'll read those uh, two verses there in Ephesians 1. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, that is God, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, understanding that uh, statement, there is a lot there. And as I studied the book of Ephesians, I've come to the conclusion that Ephesians 10 is sort of the bottom line of the whole Bible. And it's really saying what this is all about. And we're going to unpack that today, this mystery. So the mystery here in uh, Ephesians gives us a handle to understand what Paul is trying to communicate. And he's writing to a cluster of churches. You could think of this as a district letter. We have the Great Lakes West District that you're part of. And here, the church at Ephesus, these are house churches. And don't think of them as having buildings and steeples. They didn't have church buildings before 325 AD. So this is 300 years before we even had the first church building. The early church was basically a house church movement. People worshipped in their homes because Christianity was a persecuted, illegal religion, according to the Roman Empire and to those around them in their culture. So the mystery here is the will of God of what he's revealing in Christ. And God's bottom line, and as we look at this, we're going to unpack what is the bottom line about, what it's meaning for us as believers. This mystery revealed is that Paul is saying that as an apostle, God has revealed it to him as the apostle, and then he's passing it on. This district of churches around Ephesus there, and that's in the southwest corner of the country of Turkey, modern Turkey, and that region there they called it Asia Minor. And to understand the importance of this city, 
It's one of the key locations for the early church. It becomes a place where one of the five bishops which gave oversight to the early church in the early centuries was placed in Ephesus. And it was on the main road. You could think of it as like on Route 70 or the Turnpike. And it'd be sort of like the city of Chicago, if you want to have a modern analogy. It's on a crossroads. It's a hub of communication and commerce. So Ephesus is a key city, and he's writing this letter. It's intended to be circulated around to all the churches in this district or this region. And he gives this letter, in a sense, two, in a sense, divisions or compartments. The first three chapters of Ephesus, of Ephesians, I should say, is talking about our position in Christ. The last three chapters, chapters four to six, are talking about our walk in Christ. The first three chapters are extremely theological. They are extremely very deep in spirituality and at times difficult to understand. But for us, we're gonna to try to unpack it a bit this morning. To look at this will of God being revealed in time, let's look back at to what Paul is trying to get at. He said that he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And we see these prophecies starting way back even at creation. Right at the fall of humanity there, we talk about with Adam and Eve, God began his movement of forming a people for his name by starting with one couple, Adam and Eve. And in their fall, he says, well, the heel of the woman there is going to then crush the head of the serpent. And it's talking about the foot of Christ there. This imagery there is talking about a prophecy that's going to come later on in the cross to be fulfilled. Look at that in Genesis 3.15. So we start with Adam and Eve, and then this will of God, this mystery of him forming a people continues on then with Noah and the covenant with Noah. And then later on the covenant with Abraham and then with Moses and David. And those covenants then gradually revealing more and more of God's purposes and of his relationship with us. And those covenants then become focused on the intention of God forming a people and sending a Messiah, which will be a descendant of Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, going through those lines that genealogy coming from creation all the way down then to Mary and Joseph. That Jesus then there is born of the seed of the woman, of Mary, and by the incarnation, that promise is fulfilled. With each new season or covenant, God is, in a sense, relaunching this movement of forming a people for his name. And that the promised Messiah would be coming from that chosen called people, Israel, to be a blessing for all nations. The bottom line of these covenants is that God's promises to form a people for his name will not fail. And it's fulfilled the new covenant of Jesus, the Messiah. Here we see that he says in 
the times and seasons, the fulfillment to bring all things in heaven on, on earth, bringing those together. And when you bring that together, that brings to mind a really interesting Greek word, which we would think of in today's English, what you would think of as an accounting practice. Uh, when I worked as a camp director for six years, my first ministry there out of college, they said, well, you went to college and surely you understand bookkeeping. No, I did not understand bookkeeping, okay? And so I took some correspondence courses in bookkeeping to try and understand how to keep the books at the camp. When you're a camp director, you do everything from fixing a toilet to doing the books to counseling the campers. So you do a little bit of a jack of all trades and master of none. But what I found this term here in Ephesians about accounting and bookkeeping, it brought back memories there of working with our accountant, our CPA, and working at getting our books organized at our camp and how to work at understanding what is the bottom line financially of the camp at the end of the year? Well, that word in the Greek is anikophal asetai. That's a long word. It sounds about as long as the alphabet, doesn't it? But that's what Paul is using here. And that phrase, that word is only used twice in the New Testament. And when he says, I'm going to bring all things in heaven and earth together. And what he's saying there is, and that, that it's unpacking that one word. I'm going to bring everything together. In other words, everything is going to be brought to a sense of judgment and order and unity in the cosmos. And this is pretty heavy understanding for us to see that here, Paul is giving us a view of what God's going to do at the end times when we have what's called the new heavens and earth, that God is going to bring that sense of order back into the universe that we lost in the fall. This picture of a new heavens and earth was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 17. Jesus refers to this gospel, the kingdom, that's going to be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations before the end of this season or the age that we're in. The age that we're living in is this church age. And he says that in Matthew 24, 14. In 2 Peter 3, 13, and in Revelation 21, 1 to 5, we see also more visions of this new heavens and earth. And that seems sort of disconnected from us in our daily life and walk, doesn't it? The future, we talked about that term eschatology, the end times. But you know, there's a phrase that brings us down to the current uh, daily times of prayer and reflection for us. I appreciate the time of prayer we had this morning of intercession. When we do the Lord's Prayer and start with that first phrase, it really is an intercession. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase there, on earth as it is in heaven, may your will be done, is really capturing the essence of what Paul is saying here in these verses. He's saying that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have this understanding that in heaven, God is reigning and he is in charge and has order and there is no chaos. In the world we live in here, 
there is disorder and chaos. All we have to do is look at the front and the back page of the newspaper. So the idea is that God is going to be order, and he is revealing that order and that vision of a new heavens and earth in time. And we as his people, the church, are a witness to that. So the bottom line here in verse 10 is that the cosmic unity of the new heavens and earth that Jesus is going to reign. Christ is going to reign in the new heavens and earth, and he is now reigning in the church and in our lives. And the songs that we were singing today is going to be the next point of what I'm looking at uh, in these verses, and that is the work of Christ and how we're, in a sense, the strategy of this mystery being worked out in Christ. He says, I'm going to bring all these things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So how is he doing that? He did that in the work and ministry of Christ. The work of Christ is the strategy of God's mystery revealed as we see what I call the four deeds of Christ here in chapters 1 and 2 in Ephesians. On the cross, his atonement paid for the penalty of our sins. The penalty, the guilt, and shame, and power of sin is removed in the cross. We saw that in the songs today there, this concept of shame. And I want to just talk about that a bit. Shame is realizing I've done something wrong. But it also has a sense that I think that maybe there's something wrong with me because I'm doing bad things. Guilt is the sense that we are convicted in our conscience by the Holy Spirit that I've done something wrong. So we have the guilt. This is what Adam and Eve felt when they sinned. That they had the conscience. They felt that they needed to cover themselves up. So they got fig leaves and covered themselves up and hid from God. There's that sense of guilt. But there's also the sense of shame there's that sense, shame has the concept is there's something wrong with me and that's the brokenness inside and we then tend to put ourselves down. Now as believers, when we have that release of our sins and forgiveness of sins in Christ, we can still be struggling with the sense of shame as though there's still something wrong or broken inside of me. And that's what I wanna talk about in terms of our identity in Christ as we receive Christ as our Savior, our identity to be his child, to be part of his family, then is breaking that shame. We have a new identity in Christ. Our identity is not in our brokenness and our sin. Our identity is in Christ. But the penalty of sin becomes aware of us. We become aware of that in our conscience, in our guilt. But shame is that lingering sense that there is something wrong with me and we need to release that. And sometimes our culture reinforces the sense that there's something wrong with me and shame and guilt in our lives. The next point there in the deeds of Christ is the resurrection. The cross is the blood atonement for the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection then breaks the power of sin in our lives. So we have the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ. And the next thing that happens is then the ascension of Christ. And we see that in Acts 1-3, that after 40 days, after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to these people, then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
And then he begins his reign as Savior and Lord. In terms of our spiritual warfare, we need to put on the armor of Christ on a daily basis. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6. God's bottom line is that Jesus is the enthroned Lord of heaven and earth and is head of the church. In Pentecost, then the last of the deeds, we have the crucifixion, resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost, he's pouring out the Spirit to empower us in ministry with Christ in the church. So as we have the Spirit forming this new people in Pentecost, the church is born at Pentecost, and we see that in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and 3. So the church is born, and it has now this new identity in Christ, and the witness of the church now to be a powerful impact in history. The unity in Christ that we have is based upon the indwelling of the Spirit. And then I like this concept here, the vine and the branches. It shows our connection together. And if we look at that imagery here, these grapevines here, that imagery is the whole plant, the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. We're connected. Jesus and the church are one. And we see that in Ephesians 5.32. I'd like to give one story about the power of one witness and thinking about how to apply this in our life this week. The mystery of God is that he's revealed his plan to us, that he's going to unify and bring order to the world. At some point in the future, there's going to be a judgment and new heavens and earth. Christ will return. And he is working at revealing that plan and bringing order to the world through the ministry of the global church, the body of Christ. I'd like to give one story of an illustration of the power of witness. Individual in Northwest Ohio, where we live, right along I-75, has an industry, a company, it's called U.S. Plastics. You might have heard this story before. His name is Stanley Tam. Stanley moved with his family uh, during the Depression from San Francisco to Lima, Ohio. And what's really strange, you ask yourself, why would you move from San Francisco to Lima, Ohio? If you've ever been to San Francisco or to Lima, you'd ask that question and ponder. Well, this has to be God's plan. So they moved there and uh, started farming. I don't understand the story of this. There's more to his story I don't um, have. But uh, when I was... Uh, I read his life story, God Owns My Business. Stanley uh, was a door-to-door -door salesman selling uh, household products. And this is back in the Depression, out of high school. That was, jobs were tough, so he tried selling things door-to-door. -door. And he meets this uh, farmer's wife uh, there near Lima, and uh, she shares the gospel with him. And so he goes home and thinks about this. He doesn't make a decision for Christ right away. Six weeks later, he makes a decision for Christ and realizes that there is going to be a change in his life and his business. So he starts this conversation with God, a deep prayer life. And God revealed to him, he said, I want to apply my principles of the kingdom of sowing and reaping to your business. And Stanley begins to uh, have this conversation in prayer with God. And uh, so uh, God tells him to, and Stanley follows this, leading from the Lord. He says, I'm going to give you 
uh, 50% of my business. So he worked with the lawyers and he gradually over time gave 100% ownership legally, had to work with lawyers, the ownership of his corporation, U.S. Plastics, to the Lord. So all their profits go to global missions. And since Stanley started this company back in the 50s and uh, till now, they've donated about $150 million to global missions. And Randy Elkhorn did a uh, life story on studying Stanley Tam. And Stanley, uh, in one year, just one ministry that they supported, uh, they had 140,000 people make professions of Christ. That's just amazing. Uh, when you hear the uh, life story of Stanley, and I looked for his obituary. I assumed that somebody was born uh, a long time ago, 107 years ago, would, would have an obituary, right? And so I, I, there's no obituary for Stanley Tam. He's still alive. I checked him on Facebook, and apparently he, I'm guessing his, maybe his first wife died because he was married in 2010. So he's 107 years old, and I'm still doing research on him, uh, you can't find too much on the internet. It's sort of uh, sparse. But my point in telling this story is the impact of Stanley Tam is miraculous in terms of how he gave his business over to God and how that has impacted global missions by how they have funded outreach globally. Well, I want to look at the farmer's wife. God called his family, urged them to move from San Francisco to Lima. Really interesting to start farming in the middle of the Depression. Imagine that. But the point I want to give to is one, the power of one, one farmer's wife witnessed to Christ to this door-to-door -door salesman, and that changed history. And that's what I want to share with you. You may not think of your witness or impact being that much if I'm just going to share with one person, but think of the impact of that movement. And that's what we talk a lot about in LMC, the impact of one person impacting another person that in time God will multiply and bless that and it can start a movement. And that's what we see here, the power of the resurrected Christ in Ephesians, what Paul is talking about, being released in the church as his people, that we don't live in shame, but we live in the empowerment of Christ. I'd like to uh, have a closing prayer with you at this point, and then also to have a blessing for the meal. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the mystery of your will being revealed in Jesus Christ, that he gives us that freedom from sin, the freedom and the power over the trials, temptations, and struggles, addictions, whatever is the uh, struggle in our life, in our heart, or for anyone this morning that is struggling with the issue of shame, that they would see themselves as a child of yours, that you have welcomed them into your family, that they are one with you in the body of Christ. So Lord, that they can have that sense of a new identity in Christ and freedom from the power and penalty and guilt of sin, but also the shame of it. That as broken people, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and now walk in the newness and freshness of the Spirit as your people. And you have called us to be a witness. So Lord, I pray that you would empower us, give us eyes and ears to be sensitive on how we can be a witness to someone, that neighbor, that friend who is struggling or lonely or hurting.
someone who is struggling with meaning and purpose in life and even hanging on to life. Whatever are the struggles, Lord, help us to be open to touch that one this week with your saving, transforming love. And now, Lord, I want to also pray a blessing over the meal, the fellowship time together. Thank you for the provisions of the food and for those who have prepared it. Bless and encourage them. And in our time of fellowship, Lord, may we sense this newness and oneness as your people, as we find our unity is in Christ, the one who brings order to all of reality, to the cosmos, but also to our lives and in our church. I pray this in Christ. Amen. May you go this week as empowered witnesses.